0: Broadcasting from everywhere
1: and nowhere, the misfit crew at South fleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living podcast.
2: Justin Richmond has been on the podcast before. He brought his whole team in. He brought Simone and Reed, in, and Reed is currently.
0: I in the, the Socom, SoCom Care Coalition has an internship program where we can intern with any company, really. So for a year, I get to work with Justin, you know, as a way to transition out. As long as you're enrolled in the SoCom Care Coalition, I got Medivact with little boo-boo, so um, I get that.
2: <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I too am enrolled in the SOCOM Care Coalition. Nice. They're very helpful. They mm-hmm. helped with some stuff my daughter was going through, which was rad. And Simone, no military experience.
3: No military experience. Um, I'm a program officer with Impel Project, and I've been with uh, JustNet Impel for just over two years now.
2: And what was your background?
3: Um, I'm from the Midwest originally. I'm from Wisconsin. Um, I went to grad school in New York and then came out to D.C. and had worked in, um, worked on Capitol Hill for a bit, worked at a think tank and another nonprofit before I ended up with Justin.
2: So background in social sciences or... Political
3: science, international relations, um, and a little bit of journalism as well.
2: Awesome. Uh, So Justin brought the whole team in to talk and, again... Um, Not to digress too much, but I think that, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) the ayahuasca thing, uh, I think that, you know, being open to a variety of solutions to problems is a thing. Um, I don't know how much I remain skeptical, but open-minded about ayahuasca as a way to rewire the brain post trauma, but the people that I've known who've done it. Say that it's been beneficial for them. I think a lot of that is because it's a dramatic experience as well. And it forces them to go into an uncomfortable position where they have to um, evaluate trauma and things that have happened before and and actually face it instead of just kind of minimizing it. I was talking with somebody earlier this week about like 2000, 2010 to 2014 for me were pretty rough years because I minimized a lot of things that were happening in my life. And was like, no, they'll be fine, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And when it all boiled over and I addressed it directly, I felt like I made a lot better progress personally. Hmm. Um, some would call it too little too late, but... <laughs> I can see that, because yeah, I, I went through two, two kind
0: of phases of little PTSD, acute stress disorder acting up. Um, one of which, 2006, like every day for a week on the Firebase, I would cry. Then I'd be talking to some elders or watching TV show. Given an intel briefing to the team, and I start to start to crying, and my captain is just like, "Hey, man,
2: what's wrong? Let's get you.
0: A, you need a <laughs> break. You want to go to Bagram, get some money, get a massage." Yep. So I went there. Those Kirgy women and know actually, how
2: to release the tension.
0: And, and there were only ten bucks <laughs> back yep. then. You can't beat that. Um, so I went up there, and that, but that was very much almost like avoiding the problem. You know, I, I escaped it. Yep. I, I detached from it, avoided it, and and and, and it got better. But then it. Similar thing happened in 2014. Again, another really violent, violent trip. 2006 and 2014 were kind of my most exciting, uh, fun, <laughs> fun, and violent trips. But that one is when I, I faced my death, which is what people talk about with ayahuasca. Yep. You know, you're facing your death. All of a sudden it's traumatic. And I, I was charging up this, this hill where we thought some Taliban were. And they're on the radio saying, hey, we see the Americans coming. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna attack them. So I was like, all right. If I go up this hill any further, they're probably going to kill me. Um, So I accepted that. I was like, okay, so I'm going to die. That's fine. But I'm going to die going toward these guys. They're going to shoot me in the chest, not in the back. Uh, I'm cool. So I didn't tell the Afghanis that were with me because they didn't need to know. So we kept on walking up the hill. Turned out to be the wrong hill. There wasn't Taliban up there. But we got up there and I bummed a cigarette from this little (laughs) 18-year-old kid. that Yeah, Yeah. the Afghani kid. And I gave him an MRE. He gave me a cigarette. I don't even smoke. And I was like, you know what? It's Good all going to be okay. I'd accepted my own death. And I tell you what, since that time, we had a bunch of big firefights yeah. after that. No
2: issues whatsoever. And I think that's, you know, when you I've never had face it. trauma. Re- so I had that moment really early on in my first trip, like where it was like, oh, shit, we're all going to die. And like I have to accept it. Um, I never had that. But I think that that realization masks a lot of really normal emotional response hmm. to trauma. To be like, to not fear your death is one thing and great, but the way that it forces you to respond to other things is I don't always believe productive <laughs> in that, you know, like because you don't fear death, nothing seems important to you anymore. Oh, uh, for sure. Yes, I would fully 100%. <laughs> so people agree with have that. <laughs> put you view to be petty. Well, I mean, I can't speak for you, but for me, I view people that have these petty problems and they're making a big deal out of it. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, this is inconsequential. You have insurance for this. Like, you're healthy. You're not harmed. But you're very upset about something that happened to you that you didn't have any control over.
1: Why? Which, you know... Um, I mean, you're very existentialist in the way that you're approaching this. Do you... <laughs> like, are you are are you doing so intentionally? Because, like... Like, th- that is... I mean, you just defined absurdity, right? Like, Albert Camus, when they, he was looking at, like, humanity, he just looked at this stuff as like... It, nothing is meaningful. It's all absurd. Well, it's, it is a only value. What we, it's a value we've attributed. It, it, it is. And and a lot of people, I, I think people don't take that next step that if you do recognize that value is what we place on things, not of, of what it inherently means or mm. is worth, I think that allows us to reset our own values of what we, we find is meaningful. Because when people... Get stuck in that first stage of like it's all meaningless. Well, there isn't anything there. But I think it's also empowering in that next phase when you say in reality there there isn't value. But in your reality, you get to choose what is valuable. And after all this trauma, you get to reset. So decide what matters to you. Like, is it now your kids? Is it yep. now your career? Is it now having a career th- that's more meaningful to you than whatever we've been doing? Because, you know, I mean, all of us here have had a lot of different experiences, Professionally, how we got to this room is very different it, it, <laughs> for all four of us. That, that's right, and and, ha, and where we go from this room are all going to be based upon you know what we want to do and how we want to value this. And I think it can be empowering, but man, in those first moments when you're just like, well, man, nothing means anything, and mm-hmm. who gives a damn? That's scary. I mean, that that is a weird place to be in. Um, so, I what's funny, I actually went to Afghanistan on my second tour by choice after my sister's death because that was the way that I was going to cope with her death. I could not face it. What's escapism? You just need to stay busy, you mean? <laughs> Absolutely. So I had been home from Afghanistan for my first trip um, for, I think, three months. And um, and we were on vacation together in, um, uh, in Florida, and my sister was killed in a boating accident. And um, I still remember um, I had gotten that news probably... Uh, no more than two or three hours prior, and I called my boss uh, from the from like the place that we were staying and said, "I need you to send me back to afghanistan he 's like you 've been home for two and a half months man you you need more dwell time and I was like, "Hey, uh, my sister was killed tonight man i this place doesn 't make sense i got to get out of here yeah. and, uh, and and I, I will be eternally grateful because he he didn 't give me these lectures about whether that 's healthy, whether it isn 't he just Figured it out for me. What's
2: well, safe to say? It's not healthy.
1: <laughs> it, it, it's safe to say it was very not healthy. Yeah, I don't know how I would have done it otherwise, um, because I wasn't ready to face that trauma, and I don't. I I, I look back and I regret it. It brings into perspective, mm-hmm. though, that and this I
2: guess is a really good segue to talk about what you guys have been doing. But I think that in a lot of ways, um, in our super tech friendly connected society um, every minute of every day if you're not actively passed out is engaged in some sort of activity and going to Afghanistan especially in like the 2009 2012 like hey we didn't have total connectivity uh, there were 12 hours a day where I couldn't get on my cell phone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know we even then command was super super strict about in, you know involvement on social media um, much less so now. <laughs> um, but to say that we view deployments as a period of disconnection. So he's so focused on one thing, staying alive mm-hmm. or whatever it is. You don't have to worry about bills. You don't have to worry about being home. And honestly, like, if you're it's simple, if you're married, simple. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's like talking to people at home is actually an annoyance. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You're like hey, like I love you. This is a great call. I don't want to talk again. That's right
1: And like, let me let me hide in my yep. cave here in Afghanistan and do my job and Emotionally, insta- it's very simple. It, yeah. it, it is and I mean people People all deal with trauma in, in very different ways and I think you know it is, it is very It's very meaningful that like that was the way I choose to cope with it because I think a lot of people within our generation of veterans we we've all made some really unhealthy decisions in in learning how to like manage old traumas but also I think cope with existing ones and I think that's probably where I mean I certainly drop the ball the most is you know when when you're kind of overloaded and still kind of dealing with with past traumas and then you get a new one that's really hard to take you're like man where do I sort this do I manage this now or do I like set all the old stuff aside and just (sighs) just kick the can down the road that's like Uh, yeah I I, I go back (laughs) to Afghanistan right that's what I do well
2: I mean and there therein is a beauty of the Imple project which is to say you're continually kicking the can down the road right now, uh, yeah, something like that. You <laughs> just got back from the Philippines. Uh, did all of you guys go? No, no? Just, just me this time. Just you, just me. Um, are you free to travel like that right now? Reed, I just got to take leave to do it, and I'm gonna do that in a couple of weeks. Okay, and you're
0: gonna, go to, gonna go, to the, go to the Philippines, do some research for an upcoming project that we're, we're developing right now.
2: So, real quick, Justin was on the podcast a year ago, but to give people a brief once around the world, what's the elevator pitch about the Ample project?
1: Oh, I mean, we're using data to you know get get good programs to the most vulnerable communities. So you say it
2: like that as though people would know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to break it down for all the simple yeah. jacks, which is to say, uh, Justin cool. and the Impel team conduct uh, locally administered surveys mm-hmm. using like uh, people who understand the community and they, people from the community. Yep. And so they, they're employing local people to determine what the greatest areas of need are in that community, which the communities you guys have hit recently are, well, I mean, in general, you guys have been in Libya, um, Nigeria, you
1: know, Niger, Bosnia, uh, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, Philippines, and West Side of Chicago. Yep. Yes. Which I would love to talk about. Yeah, the west absolutely. Of super cool. Yeah. I think that awesome. uh,
2: we've... We've been talking about doing stuff internationally just because it's like in ties with like the the glorious tradition of the Special Forces Regiment, whatever. But like there's a lot of inequality and um, and uh, discontent disenfranchisement, I guess is the right word yeah, in the United States alone. Done. And uh, so what what took you guys the west side of Chicago?
1: Well, we had a donor that is really interesting. Uh, really interested in ameliorating um, the the problems between the police and the community, and what a lot of people don 't realize is the the black lives movement um, the all lives movement these things are grown out of like years of of grievances that have just gone unresolved and policing is very very it 's a very difficult uh, profession, and I think sometimes you know each city has different policies and different histories about how they have managed um, low-income populations and minority populations, and quite frankly, those histories are pretty damn ugly. And Chicago has a really, really ugly history with that. Um, I think, especially like looking at um, so Mo- stu- most industrial cities, yeah. I mean, have that because it's a working class. I mean, it's post-slavery. It is indentured you, servanthood. It is, but I think I mean you know I grew up. No, I was a Yankee. I grew up in Indiana. Um, Indianapolis had uh, a large uh, African American population that uh, moved up with a great migration, just like folks did to Chicago and Cincinnati you know into the Midwest. Um, so you know Indianapolis had some of those dynamics, but in Chicago, one of the neighborhoods we worked in was North lawndale And north lawndale is uh, it's rough um, it, there are lots that have probably been vacant for 30 years. Um, just boarded up houses. There's not a lot of businesses. And you see check cashing, uh, you know, short order food.
3: Pawn stores, pawn shops, 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 Hair places.
1: Yeah. You know, like but I mean, God help you if you need a bank account. Because you're gonna have to I mean, you're gonna have to walk or take the train two miles to find a bank. Um and how do you do business without a bank account? How do you Well, I mean, how far is it to the D M V? Yeah. I mean that's why nobody's got driver's oh, licenses I, I, or identification. I, I, absolutely. I mean there there are a lot of systemic problems. Nor, the problem in North Lawndale goes all the way back to the civil rights movement when uh, Dr. King wanted to, to go up and give a really large, you know, speech. I think this was 63, 62 or 63. And uh, Mayor Daley was like, mm, "No way. Wherever you go, there is chaos. We're we're, you know, we're very, you know, pro civil rights here, you know, we're the north." And that wasn't true at all. I mean, the city was was absolutely, uh, you know, uh, segregated, and um, and you know he's trying to hide that from Dr. King and Dr. King being being himself, he he went back up to North Lawndale and he gave that uh, you know gave that speech and just you know. Thousands of people turned out. it was, it was great, and daily shut them down after that. So um, after that, you had daily giving like instructions like to, to not do policing and to not invest here to not put city services in there all just to screw over that neighborhood for disobeying them. Um, and it never recovered because once you know that that happened at a very critical time within economic development, and once they moved those jobs and those factories and those homes out to the suburbs, they're not coming back in, and so they, they missed that opportunity. And got stuck in North Lawndale. And you there's there's no jobs there. Um, the I mean, Baltimore is similar. Baltimore's absolutely similar. And people wonder why your know, criminality is so high. there. There's literally no other opportunity the only, out there. Yeah, it's the only economic opportunity. It is. And if it were me, I'd be doing the same thing. Yep. And I, I would assume that you all would probably be similar. I mean, we're all hustlers.
2: So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm only like 30 seconds away from flipping birds anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I stole
0: some weights from the uh, yeah. shop later. Reads, uh, read like, <laughs>
1: did you check his pockets? Like, I seriously, didn't. check them. I didn't, but I probably should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's stuffing all kinds stuff. Have you of ever done a thing
0: as an ODA where you visit the B team and you're like, let's Oh take no,
1: everything. Yeah, yeah, every <laughs> not
2: nailed down. Why are they carrying all those bags, those empty bags? so they're not empty anymore, buddy. <laughs>
1: uh, y'all are evil. So yeah. that's, It's good that you treat each other as... Almost as badly as you treat the enablers. That makes me feel a little bit better. the
2: The rule of thumb is that the B team is the enemy. You can't steal from other teams, right? but right, you right. can totally steal from the B team or above. So the headquarters, B team, C team.
0: Bagram, yep. all fair game.
2: Because mm-hmm. they're all scumbags. They're, they're collapsing under their own weight. They're hoarding. So they're, they owe you for the poor working conditions and low wages. <laughs> they owe us. That yep. is the right answer. <laughs> Dougie, I love how you were
1: so, I mean, you're a philanthropist. You were trying to unburden people. and um, They don't know what to do with that stuff they, anyway. They don't, they, yeah, absolutely. They'll take Ooh. it for granted. They'll
2: just get fat up there.
1: So it's best we deny them. We must. Yeah. For their own good. It's an obligation. It is. <laughs> it is. That's, that's how I look at fundraising. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to help everybody. I'm trying to unburden them.
2: So you guys went to Chicago yeah. with a charter to identify why there's so much resentment.
1: Yeah. Why? why so... You know, we don't have leading questions, um, but we just kind of asked in, in a very open way. It's the same um, way as you did, I mean, in we, we follow the same methodology that we do um, in every country. Now, the, the questions will change, and these questions were specifically focused on, um, like, community safety and community uh, police relations. And so we got, uh, I think... Thirteen hundred in about four or five days. Thirteen hundred responses. Thirteen hundred responses out of, um, I mean, just two neighborhoods, just two neighborhoods of Austin and North Lawndale, and um, just overwhelmingly, you know, people are really, really worried about like livelihoods, jobs, um, opportunity. Um, we happened to get there right during the uh, that first blizzard of of kind of the winter in early November. And so it was bitter cold. It was like five degrees. Chicago is the worst, man. It is really, really cold. Um, And so that obviously made it really hard for our people to get out and uh, talk to people because you can't talk to people on the street. But they did a really good job. Um, We had a great team. Um, And one of the things I enjoy most is that we always, at the end of it, we bring our enumerators together, the people that are collecting data, and we do a focus group with them. And we let them unpack all the data that they've gathered. And for us, we just had some really meaningful ones. I mean, you know, there was just some some of our enumerators that were, um, you know, former felons themselves, and, you know, that blocked them from... You know from getting good jobs and this was like one of the first good jobs that they had had in a long time And so it was really powerful to work on issues that really meant something to them and they're from these communities um, And they're trying to make a difference and no one no one goes to these communities to help them out Like there's a few local community organizations, but they need, need way more investment.
2: So to I guess clarify I know that like When you guys go into developing countries or conflict zones, you guys are at you guys are Identifying problems that are identified by the local community. Yeah, absolutely So like you don't like, when you say you don't bring in leading questions, you're literally going in with a blank slate You're hiring a bunch of people to conduct surveys and you're basically saying No guidelines Go and ask what the top three biggest problems in your community are
1: that's yeah. literally the first question is what's the biggest problem facing your community? Mm-hmm. and so we're asking number one biggest because a lot of things are wrong in like western nigeria we yeah, got yeah. it but what is the biggest problem facing your community and we're, we have to make sure that they have um they're speaking more about communal problems and not their own it's like oh you know i got a really bad back and i need to give we don't care about that yeah but um What's fascinating is we ask the same three, four core questions everywhere in the world, and then we have like an addendum of however many questions that like the donor or partner wants. And um, you know, for Chicago, I think we had eight extra. Maybe, no, actually, maybe it was more. Was it twelve?
3: It was a little bit. Yeah, I think like a 12 there, there,
1: there was there was actually a, a few more, but it was just like you know, a strongly agree, agree, neutral, dis, uh, disagree, strongly disagree. So it was a Likert scale type thing, and that goes fast because you just slide your finger.
3: Um, and a lot of times the enumerators are uh, our local staff that we hire will help us sort of tailor some of those questions in those surveys. That's right. If we're overlooking, right. um, if we're over- overlooking certain issue areas, um, and our enumerators in Chicago definitely did that with a couple of the questions. They
1: sort of, yeah, they like, allowed us saw to hone them, them Yeah, and, um, they
3: can kind of see what, if we're missing anything and what we need to drill down on to make the yeah. survey more effective and get the so uh, more accurate information.
2: What are we doing with the information? The people who are commissioning this mm-hmm. are obviously people with a vested interest in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, like,
1: right. you're if you're doing USAID work in yeah. So this is what's really tricky is that um, it only recently have we started like really what the ideal setup looks like, where uh, we have a donor like USAID that funds for both the data collection and the baseline creation of understanding the the operational environment. Then doing the work and monitoring throughout and then doing like an an end line so that we understand what changed. Well, most organizations have a pretty narrow focus of effort. So
2: like Mm -hmm. if you were to go to West Chicago Mm -hmm. and the results of the survey aren't in line with what the organization like commissioning the surveying process is in line with, like who's following up trying to like make sure that there's a difference made? I mean,
1: so that really boils down to the donor organization, but we'll do it. Because at the end of the day, I have to find out whether the donor organization cares enough to work on the problems identified with the data. And this has actually come up a a few times where they were like, oh, well, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't exactly what we want. I'm like, well, guess what, bub? It ain't about you. Yeah. Like, this is the information we collected. It's just like, look, like, tell me a place to work in that you care about or tell me an issue to work on. But don't tell me both unless you have the data to prove it. Because, like, that's it. Happy to go anywhere in the world and and work on that community. But let that community advocate for itself. So, well, if
2: you guys determine that there's an issue are you guys putting the the rubber to the road to find resources to address the we issue? Do.
3: We do. Yeah, and you know we like to say sometimes too, that data can be incredibly inconvenient for certain parties and that has proven to be true I mean, time and time across again. Across the board, right? Across Nobody the likes board. to look at numbers. That's right. Well, yeah. and also it will it will uncover issues that you maybe didn't know were there. Or that you maybe don't know, you know, how you're going to solve just yet. It's really, you know, it can become quite complex. Um, so, you know, well, a lot I mean, of that's up to, up to the donor. and the Social and scientists us, in
2: but, general are really good at pontificating
3: they are. <laughs> on the yes, problems, but right.
1: addressing them is a little bit different. That's right. Well, it's funny you bring up that point because one of the things I found about data, I didn't expect this, but um, data in it is, it is neutral when it comes to power dynamics. It is just describing the world as it exists. And I didn't realize how many people love that pontification rule, have made careers on that pontification rule, and are threatened by communities advocating for themselves. Because it's like, once you, you know, this guy in the nice tweed jacket can't speak for you know, large swaths of Africa... And we can actually listen to, like, African citizens in Cameroon that are both French-speaking and English-speaking advocate for themselves. Those people lose lose their power because now they're not interpreting the world for us. Now we get to listen to the signal and interpret it for ourselves. As long as you
2: don't shed on Rudyard Kipling, I'm okay. I love Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, well,
1: everybody's it. always like, that, that racist... Oh man the, the colonialist But, imp- but he Oh absolutely Yeah Rudyard Kipling uh, If is one of the great poems Of all time
2: uh, He's a pretty good author But also I, Apparently I'm some sort of Neo-Nazi conservative For liking uh, Rudyard Kipling At least in academic circles I tried to I was going to get a Ricky tikki tabby tattoo And my wife was like why do you have to be a racist? I like, it's a fucking story about a mongoose. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a greater meaning. That's, uh, <laughs> I, actually,
1: I, still do, I, 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 I still, I still heard that there's a greater meaning. So I uh, think it's
2: the, the Rudyard Kipling. Like, I think well, all men in pith
1: helmets yeah. from that period of time, I mean, I, I mean, colonialism was a little racist. It was, it, it was <laughs> pretty bad. I yeah, mean, you didn't say that, yeah. everything that's broken right now largely came out of colonialism. But yes. so, you
0: know, speaking of that, like when I was when I would describe Impel and the work they were doing to army buddies who work in a SWIC organization, a lot of older, yep. uh, retired folks, older white contractors, stuff like that. I would explain to them what he was doing in boutique. You know, boutique is where you had. ISP, um, the Monte group. For, for anyone
2: listening, Boutique is the Philippines. Yeah. Southern yeah. Philippines. Southern yes. Philippines. So, Islamic State sorry. Philippines. Yep. Yep. No, yes. dude. Military yeah, we, guys are good I, with I was going to do, we're do the that. Best. Best. Yes, yes.
0: So in, in Southern <laughs> Philippines, he's, you know, Muslim extremists there. And I would explain to them how Impel was um, Reaching out to these at-risk youth, out-of-school youth, giving them job training, giving them jobs, and for all these old SF guys, it made perfect sense to them because it's fucking what civil affairs should be doing. But then when I explained to them what he was doing in Chicago, it didn't make sense to them at all. Well, that's they're great. like, oh, those those thugs, you can't do anything <laughs> to help them. And it, it's interesting because <laughs> probably if you went to people in Manila in the Philippines, they might say the same thing. They say about the same the thing Marino. about Manila. Yeah. So it's it's like we can. It, as colonialists, neo-colonialists, we can, we can look at these things objectively in a place like uh, Southern Philippines, whereas in our own backyard the in America. The myth you of can't, the noble savage. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but like people in, in America, racism won't let us see the problems the same way.
2: It's funny, man, yeah. how SF guys committed their entire life to the motto, De Oppresso Liber, but really only to cisgender... Like multi, like we we like the race of people we worked with. Guys like I don't know those Middle Eastern guys aren't so bad, or that you know Central American guys or whatever. But mostly just dudes. Still not cool with women. Still not cool with people with like alternate sexual identities. You talk to them and they're like, "Fuck women in SF." I'm like, that's weird. I thought that our motto was to free the oppressed, and denying women access to the regiment seems a lot like oppression to me. But what do I know? I'm just a fucking
1: Whoa 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 whoa. Like <laughs> now I mean now you're taking on some sacred cows so and yeah. you're,
2: you're you're trust gonna, me. It happens on the internet every day. I, I sometimes I, shake my head. I'm I know like, what's no, I've
1: seen it I I've seen a few lately. You've you've really been on fire lately in a great way. No, but I, like, I get the trolls on my Instagram
2: account now that are like, Are you gonna work out with the women? I'm like, come on, man. Like geez. I work out with anybody. I don't like, what's wrong with you guys? But dude, SF guys who are supposedly doing God's work. <laughs> you know, like, hey, man, our job is to like help the, the Hmong people, or which I, I'm sure I mispronounced the fuck out of that. But um,
3: I think the H is
2: silent. Is it? So the Hmong the people. Hmong people. Hmong. Yeah. There you go. There you go. We, that was our goal in Vietnam. A lot of SF guys developed a really close relationships with those yeah. people <laughs> and feel very fondly towards them, even though those dinks north of the. North of the border, the worst people on the
1: planet. Oh yeah, they go racist as soon as they talk about the enemy. Yep. But when I talk, yeah, absolutely. Well, depersonalization of your vote is a very successful psychological technique. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> What's fascinating about this is the fact that I I feel very fortunate. The fact that I got to revisit like the insurgency in the Philippines ten years after that I that I was uh, a soldier in it because. I still remember in 2009, one of the guys that, um, you know, uh, just sort of P uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines, which is, I think it was a 14 year named, you know, thing. Um, one of the guys that everybody wanted to kill was a guy named Isnilan Hapalon. Um and man, I think I think he was reported to have been killed like four or five times. Didn't you hang out with him? I no, I didn't. I didn't hang out with him, but I hung out with another guy um that at that time was a major um MILF rebel, Commander Bravo. And man, now usually when I go down to Mindanao, Commander Bravo and I will hang out. We will usually like see each other. Um we're actually working something um to do a water project up there. So some of your bottles might be going to my kids up there. Um, Two of my buddies at work were trying to kill him for many years. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And and I'll tell you, you I'm sure he would have returned the favor. It's just funny that in 2019, 2020, you know, like, man, when we've been trying to do a water project up in his area, and all we did was call him up, and we are like, hey, man, like, we need to get this deal going. Are you going to come down here? Yep. He rolls into our hotel with his 20-man PSD, and everybody's like, Commander Bravo "Yeah, eh, you know, I just came over to, for the meeting. It's just wild." But, and Islam Habbal, the guy that we ran around trying to get in two thousand nine, didn't get him then. He's the one who does. You know, he rears his head in twenty seventeen and drives the Marawi siege, which is, you know, two hundred seventy thousand people displaced because of the uh, ISIS movement there. It's funny. Seeing how 10 years later, we're all sitting around, you know, you're running an awesome company, you're coming out of uh, soft and coming over to work with, with us, you know, we're doing some really cool stuff around the world. I mean, and it's a lot of on that guy. He He's still fighting it like eight, nine years later, and then gets radicalized, gets more radicalized boys and go to get himself killed And Commander Bravo, on the other side, works for peace, is now a parliamentarian, is probably going to be a member, like a, a legit like executive uh, for all of the, the Bangsamoro people that live outside of the region. I mean, you have one guy that looked at all this stuff and he broke bad or kept breaking bad. And yet another guy was like, man, it just didn't work. So let's go the peace way. I have, so, I've
0: long been a big believer in letting terrorists get old enough that they get tired and you can negotiate with them. Uh, when I was getting my degree, most of my, a lot of my papers were on the IRA because from from both sides, everyone now has written books. They're all in English and you can read what, what both sides were doing. And you let these IRA terrorists get old enough that they want, political power, they want money, yeah.
2: they want to be with their family, well, and you they, can want their kids them. To, they want their kids to not be afraid. That's yeah. a- well, and yeah.
3: sometimes you don't even have to wait. I mean, different terror groups are incentivized by different things, so sometimes it's not always about even waiting for them to get tired. It's just about finding out uh, what you can leverage
2: which is an interesting topic because i believe we spent 20 years cutting the head off the snake
0: yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yes to get and, right. the snake
3: yeah
2: when what is the theory is is you're a political scientist uh, Simone, but like when what is it called it's uh, it's not darwinian but uh when it's the um the evolution of an organization based on killing off older less relevant leadership that mm. you think is important to so like the assassination of Suleimani mm. in oh, Iran. Um, there was a phrase for it, but it's like the organizational evolution that comes from that to say, it's like, hey, if we had actually assassinated Hitler, uh, yeah, would we I... have had as easy of a time invading Europe because these old, stale, dogmatic, totalitarian leadership is actually inhibiting the growth of the organization. So mm. getting rid of the top tiers is actually... Causing the generation, already causing the organization to grow inadvertently,
3: right? I don't. I actually don't remember. I can't, what remember the called. I can't remember either. But you know, with Soleimani, we killed him, and he just got replaced by somebody else. So you well, know, as it, anyone changing? who's worked for
0: a general can tell you, it's impossible to replace it's, a general. If you kill that general, it's. <laughs> It's impossible to replace him. We just know
2: military has the capability because they're the that. most vital player. Yeah, the they are. Well,
1: players. they're so smart. <laughs> they're so smart. <laughs> I, 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 it's so hard to like keep a straight face, but like I wanted to do the ring knocking that inevitably comes. I'm like, "Yes, sir. What college did you graduate from?" That's awesome. Um, it's uh, don't, so,
2: don't worry. They're na- they're naval post grad. That that's, is a really meaningful graduate degree. It's very rigorous. <laughs>
1: you, are, you are going down some chicken ground, man. I'm not going to follow you there. But what I am going to bring up is that I've been listening on Audible to the, uh, the biography of Mao. And it is fascinating. Uh, so it was the one written by Jun Chang, and I think uh, like something Halliday. Speak uh, about somebody who's committed to revolution, though. Like when you guys are talking about, hey, Commander Bravo, like work with oh, the organization. Oh, you totally just brought this up as you're talking but about Mao tripled down, dude. Like that's the thing that's fascinating is just listening to what an utter sociopath he was, and where people don't realize that you know what made Mao. Unique was that uh, he was he was absolutely a thug like it his core he fundamentally enjoyed violence and he fundamentally enjoyed He was a freaking sadist. Oh absolutely like the pain of his enemies like, He would put the screws to people 20 years after they wronged and him
2: but his own people
1: too. Oh, so it didn't matter oh, without question There were no friends Communist. He if you stood in the way of his own personal gain I mean he would eliminate you he sent I think a corps of twenty thousand uh, Red Army fighters into Chiang Kai-shek's like national uh like you know, national lines. And there was a deal. Chiang Kai shek was just like, look, you can go right on through, just get out of here. We don't want you here. But he didn't tell that unit that they were that he was sending a, a corps in, so the nationals, they they don't have good comms. They wiped him out to like four hundred people and just because it was his political rival, that was the guy that was most likely to become the next uh, like rival to him, I mean, the ruthlessness is just—I mean, it's really unparalleled. And um, you know, I, I, I thought many times I was like, you know, you can't fix that. And when people like that are allowed to like, they're—they're they're, they're generational. It's like w- just crazy people that take advantage of the of the, is, the circumstance.
2: This is an interesting segue mm-hmm. because we've all worked places <laughs> where despotic, seemingly. sadistic strongmen have been the glue that held order together. And to say like, we can all agree that like the invasion of Iraq was a mistake. Deposing Saddam Hussein has caused a lot of turmoil. Now, 20 years later, Mm -hmm. we have what looks like democracy in Iraq after a crazy amount of contractions. We have a duly represented (laughs) government Mm -hmm. that uh, the people of Iraq view as you know representative of their own beliefs even though it does not mirror US interests in the region. Sure. Um it's great. I yeah, mean honestly like from a pure <laughs> from a, a purist standpoint I'm like oh look at the uh, government of Iraq. Like it's not bad. No, I mean they're like they're working through growing pains but they're reasonably altruistic and they don't agree with us but they are doing was, but best we want right. that independence. So. We say that, but we really maybe not. We, yeah, we've
0: <laughs> I, Egypt has taught us we do not want people actually voting for people that uh, they like and
2: we don't like. <laughs> well, I mean, the point the point, will, the point, point ever, is again, mighty quick. <laughs> I think that we we from an idealist standpoint we do want that. We're introducing democracy so that people can vote for who they want to vote for and and see. The mistakes of that. Like, they don't understand that we have this corporate oligarchy in the United States that it doesn't matter who you elect, the outcomes are going to be the same. Unless you were to, like, get rid of the leadership in the top five corporations, you know, then maybe the ideas change. But, like, we're still electing puppets. Yeah. I mean, democracy
1: doesn't happen in a vacuum. So, Um, Doug, I actually have something for you. I think I've wanted to get your take on this because I think. I think you should, you would have a really unique look. So, and I believe you and I were talking about this yesterday. I was talking about this one. Of you. I think we're starting to look at a uh, at a post nation state world. I think the vast majority of the people around the world are starting to see that, like the Westphalian concept of like a nation state that like serves like public interest that um, you know represents us that allows for all the all the kind of social contract shit that we were promised. Most people like that doesn't work.
3: Yeah, we were talking um, about that the car on the way down. Yeah,
1: I think, and I, I actually, I think the millennials will figure this out. We won't. I think the Xers. I think we're, we're kind of like the the old Luke Skywalker's. We're. We're bitter enough that we don't want to do anymore, but we're happy to, like, provide some input on how to make this happen. But it's kind of going to be on the next generation. But I think people are going to have to evolve. Like, humanity has to evolve beyond the nation state because nation state is creating, like, a lot of arbitrary uh, divisions and conflicts that we actually don't need to fight. Like, What,
2: it, what is the contra- <laughs> what mm-hmm. What does that look like when you go, hey, I mean, like, honestly... It seems to me that things that should raise ire in the international community at this point are looked the other way if they're going to cause great economic. Absolutely. And and I think that's the
1: problem. And I I think I think. We're we're probably still, I think, a decade, decade and a half away from that kind of upheaval. This is like the talk about legalizing marijuana. By the way, I feel like this is just a big pipe
2: dream. Where it's like, hey, what happens if we got rid of all the nation states?
1: (laughs) But that's the funny thing. Remember the nation states? I mean, nation states replaced like monarchy, and for a long time, people had no idea how do you replace a monarchy. But those were still nation states in their own capacity. They were just. But different Monteries. power dynamics, yeah, and yeah. I think, and I think that's probably the biggest Time thing replacing. How do you? How do we do this? Like because right now, I think power is very equivalent to money. You know, like the the more the, the more money you have in the world, you know that that allows you to resources do what are always going to make you powerful. That's right, and so and so the question remains. You know, a lot of these resources have uh, come. You know, to nations or to corporations, and be, because of deals, they were able to make in, in old power structures. How do people reclaim that? Do they reclaim that? Um, what I see is just that you know people are highly discontent with what they're getting out of their governments, and there's going to ha- humanity will figure out a solution. Whether they figure it out within the next uh, twenty years or two hundred years, I don't know, but it is absolutely evident that nation states are grossly failing us, like failing humanity in a lot of different ways. And I think the coronavirus is probably the thing that, like, illuminates us because you have all these different countries breaking down in very different ways on their own systems.
2: About, but over
1: over hype. Mm-hmm. It's like over, not, yeah, it's, it's, over something that it's it's is not
2: real. Like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm, going, I'm going to say something very socialist, which mm-hmm. will not surprise anyone who knows me. But it's not really a bad thing that a bunch of over fifty-year-old smokers are dying from the flu. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm sitting here going, "Okay, man. So kids don't show it at all. Like this is literally a disease that ki- you don't even know kids have it. Yeah. It's... And then if you're a healthy Contributing member of society, the chances of you dying are 03 percent. This is, yeah, but that old was people Darwinistic.
3: vote. Now that was dark. Oh, oh, well, yeah.
2: <laughs> so oh, old people do vote, but they've outused their usefulness. Well, and, <laughs> like hey, my friend, you know what? The idea of social security but was really good. Walk, grandparents
0: watch your kids while you go on date night. That's important. We need that. My, not my grandparents. <gasps> no,
2: not my parents.
1: So. No. I'm being selfish. Yeah, now. yeah. Like, uh, my generation doesn't. No, not really. <laughs> um, this, is,
2: this must be a Mormon thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the well, th- I welcome
0: our new coronavirus overlords. <laughs> they're listening right now. <laughs> but
2: to say that COVID 19, like, the thing we talked about this, just like, <laughs> we touched on it over a message the <laughs> other day where I was laughing because you're like, like, Coronavirus, the virus itself has no bearing on anything it 's not even if it was to kill its maximum effective mm-hmm. amount of people what, I mean, what are we thinking it's going to kill you know I mean if it stayed on its current trajectory, you could maybe potentially see it infecting a billion people yeah. and then killing I, was okay, it thirty million or something yeah thirty million of them so like that's that 's worst case scenario. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that the n- major economic pathways of that's production and distribution have been shut down. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is our recession. I mean, th- th- this is triggering the over, gul- n- over nothing. Absolutely. Like, this is our
2: recession triggered over
1: nothing.
3: Well, it was already coming.
1: Yeah, like, it, it, it
3: just it, it was, hastened things up a little
2: but bit. But it was hastened by our own. Like, I mean, somebody somewhere started to freak out because they thought the Chinese were covering something up, that's which right. maybe they were. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> But I mean, it wasn't so bad. It's that the Chinese are all congenital smokers and the pollution's so bad in China that like the death rates there were really mm-hmm. bad. Yeah. And then if you look, it seems as though death rates are way worse in socialized countries. Like where there's like a lot of old people. Well, and a lot of limited medical care. Yeah, where it's, you know, maybe it's universal, but it's limited and
1: yeah, and you have, I mean, you have a lot of the the countries around the world that are just absolutely overloaded in their medical systems. And so, I I mean,
2: that's a huge problem. We're going to be there. I mean, if this Mm -hmm. takes off, which is, I guess what Brian's point has always been in all this is to say, it's not that people are not, it's not that people are going to die from coronavirus. It's that every intensive care unit bed is going to be full Absolutely. of people yeah. with coronavirus and people with other diseases or other issues are going to die because there's
1: no room for them to be in the hospital. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've accepted the fact that I will get coronavirus. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. So,
0: uh, When know. I was at the free fall school, we all got swine flu, and half the guys came in and jumped that Monday with the swine flu. It's not so bad. Well, well I mean, that's the thing. I stayed <laughs> home because I was pussy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like, I mean... Also worth noting is that there's been a pandemic of some variety every election year cycle, as long as I can remember. Hmm. If we go back. I mean, there's like H1N1, swine flu, uh, the Ebola thing that was overblown. Um, I mean, wash your hands, people. I don't even do it. I like to live on the edge. I I don't don't, touch dead bodies anymore. I like to touch dead bodies and take a dip. It's That's it. (laughs) Put your hands in your mouth, <laughs> uh, but that's, I mean, that's vile. <laughs> <laughs> You guys, yeah. I mean, I guess the the point that I was going to talk about before we like jumped off the. We always do this. Uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, it's um, kind of fun. That's why I'm so looking forward. But how are we going to do mm-hmm. this thing where you guys are trying to make a difference in communities, like you are? Like mm-hmm. you're. You, I look at uh, Imple Project as like the in, the good NCO. Of the world where it's like, hey, man, I could have been an officer and really told a bunch of people what to do, but I'm making a difference in my local sphere. So you guys are creating spheres all over the world and saying, hey, what matters to you guys? Mm -hmm. Let's fix that Mm -hmm. because the big shit, we're never going to fix it. Mm -hmm. But I guess when we talk about things in a more global like sense, um, what is the balance between empowering the mouths for the greater good? Mm -hmm. You know, we're going, hey, uh, we deposed a lot of strongmen. Along the way, during an altruistic phase of State Department mm-hmm. involvement, mm-hmm. all that we found was that it was way worse without them. Yeah. Um so what's the balance to say, hey, you know what, like, I believe in morality, I don't believe in mass executions, I don't believe in sacrificing your own people or treating them poorly, and you should do better by all of them. Yeah. But also, <laughs> like, um, getting rid of the person who does all those things doesn't necessarily make things better for
1: people. So th- this is this is the point that I would make. When it came to all of the kill capture, or the vast majority of kill capture missions uh, that Soft engages in, Um, A lot of that we're trying to take out the people that threaten us the most and threaten our missions the Mm -hmm. most but we're not taking out the people that are threatening the communities the most like which is why in some communities when the Taliban or ISIS were attacking us we were seen as the problem. I mean I remember – the uh the surveys that came out of Cytabad and Wardak in like 2011 2012 i mean no we were the we, i mean we were not the bad guys
2: but i remember going to villages and attempting to have a KLE and they would come in and they would be ahead like 10 people in the village to send a message yes just okay. because we drove through and stopped
1: yeah i like the the, the politics on, on on these levels like when when our adversaries can co-opt like it was really NATO. Like they, the like the air strikes that were coming in, some of the uh, some of the night stuff, it really angered people. And so the Taliban were able to get leverage on us by by saying, "Oh well, we'll come in here and help you." And that was one of the things that led to the evolution. What was it, evolution eleven? Do you remember this, where the um, uh, you had a bunch of SEAL Team Six uh, guys that were killed in Wardak? It was 2011, August, extortion, like, uh, 17.
2: Ex- extortion seventeen, extortion And That was in um, Andar, I think. I mean, like I was in, I've been in that town a bunch. I'm pretty sure yeah. they came in. It, it was, was
1: right between Baraki Barak and uh Cytabad. Yep, but I don't, I don't remember that road. You know what I'm talking about? That's right. It it's Route One. I
2: mean, it's it is. Oh, that is. It's yeah, right I, off Route One. That's right off. And route it one. ended up being like, like two weeks later, an unnamed. Special Operations Unit, which you know, you know, what you know, that is schwacked A.M.P. checkpoint <laughs> with a 500-pound bomb, and it was like, oh, it's an embarrassment for the U.S. And you're like, eh, they were taking fire from. I mean, there were a lot of mixed players in that oh, realm. Well,
1: oh, well, that that area is
2: just because you wear a uniform in in Wardak does not mean that you are a fan of the government.
1: Oh no, I mean Ward, Wardak. I mean Wardak was one of those places where I I really learned that. Where I really felt like the U.S. strategy, especially on the civilian side, that we we were off. And it was, I mean, we just didn't know. And what was worse is that a lot of people just didn't. It's because
2: we didn't have any fucking information.
1: Yeah. And you could go out and you can try to get it.
2: And the more you found out, the more you realized that the, the information you were getting did not line up with any understanding of reality you've ever had. Yeah. To be like, like, what? the fuck is going
1: on it, it, it was one of the things that i really was curious about how were people going to like respond to me differently uh, as a guy from an ngo versus a dude with a uniform and a gun and it was it's remarkable it's remarkable the the difference i mean it shouldn't be surprising but it does surprise me um you bring a lot
2: of power when you're in uniform though
1: you do that's the thing right you 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 do you do well it's a different meaning they won't necessarily have a conversation for you but they will see you as useful um way more useful than any other ngo but the problem is i don't want people seeing you as useful i want people seeing you as neutral and that you are there like to support the government in doing it is doing its duty the problem is we all got pulled into these, you know, he said, she said, you know, oh, he's Taliban or he's ISIS or he's this and man, those are those are unwinnable. That like that's We have really the power to act on it. Mm-hmm. As long as
2: you can get a guy on the J well, list then it. you can roll him up.
1: I mean, how many how many of those uh, family disputes did we unintentionally settle ourselves? Like, jeez.
2: I mean um, I'm <laughs> I can't even imagine especially once we started to give the family grievance money when yeah. a guy got killed in the service of yeah. Afghanistan, yeah. and like they they were doing drive bys on their cousins just yeah. to just to pick up two hundred fifty grand or whatever. And you are like, damn, yeah, perverse incentives. The we it, we create a few of them. Sometimes it be that way. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, it does. But yeah, man, I I really love what you guys are doing, and I love that you are identifying like real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last time you were here, we talked about um, the, you know, micro loans for Libya. Yeah. Because of lack of liquidity.
1: Yeah. Lack of, lack of liquidity. Yeah. Which
2: who would have thought that like going into a, essentially a war zone that was totally destabilized that the answer to a lot of problems was just to inject cash.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cool thing is, you know, our, our Libya team actually reached out to me uh, about a month ago now and they're really interested in almost, uh, Essentially, like, starting a franchise over in Benghazi, like a nipple franchise, where, you know, they kind of take on the leadership of it and work kind of from, like, from this level before there's even funding going in there. But setting this up and getting the uh, proper registration done so that they can they can make a difference. And that, for me, is incredibly humbling and, um, uh, and inspiring because, like, at the end of the day, that's what – I mean, I want – I want people to solve their own problems like in their communities. And uh, I mean, obviously, if they want to u- use this brand to do it, take it. I mean, it's, it's just a name.
2: Well, that begs a question mm-hmm. with what you guys did in Chicago. Um, you guys identified pretty large disparity. Uh, well, a gap in trust mm-hmm. between the community and the police. Yeah.
3: A black hole would be. More-
1: <laughs> an extreme, <laughs> an extreme gulf. Extreme
2: the only gulf. organization that's tasked with Good order or whatever it may be construed as in that in those communities is the police. Yeah um, What did you What action are you guys taking based on the information you collected in Chicago? Like what is the
1: solution? Well, the first action, the first action we got to take is uh, find a donor that wants to work on this problem There's two th- there's two ways to work on this if you want to work long term you really have to get into um, uh, jobs rehabilitation um, support for mental health a lot of the people have a lot of trauma that uh, that that are that's going to be need to be worked through before they can be like a really good solid employee but i mean that's why therapy exists like we've all been in it it works so but they don't have the access to this and there's still enormous stigmas on mental health uh in, in, get, in, in i'm sure they're all afraid they're going to get locked up well in in the other side of it is like People, people are like you know. You just need to tough it out. You just need like, and that's like the boomer generation. Just tough it out. It's like, no man, y'all broke the world. Can can like let us sort this out by you know talking to each other and figuring out how we're going to process all this. And those resources aren't available in the inner city. Um, Quite frankly, um, obviously on my side, it is you know lining up the donors that would be interested in in doing something about that. There is room to be done. I attended. At least one, if not two, meetings of uh, Chicago Police um, in the communities, and I thought they did a really good job on their outreach. The problem is there's just not enough of it, and um, you know it's interesting that a lot of police units um, within the inner city, in the way that they kind of manage the security, they they act like in like an infantry line unit um, with all the like with all the strengths and weaknesses that kind of come along with that, um, and so you find that men- mentality very prevalent, um, and I think. Uh, That's a tricky mentality to do really good community policing with. I understand why they're coming at it, because just the security... That they have faced and uh, the danger that they they face, but I don't, but I think it's a counterproductive stance. Uh, the problem is you just can't criticize and be like, oh, well, you shouldn't do that. Well, give a solution. Um, and I think they've got some, I think they've got some really smart people uh, that are thinking uh, about this and talking about this. Um, I'm hoping that the new mayor in Chicago, uh, Lightfoot, takes this seriously um, and puts the investment um, I actually think there needs to be dual investment both into the communities to help with rehabilitation job preparedness, business skills like you know how do you how do you create like a, a budget how do you create a good resume how do you uh, highlight some of your past work uh, so that they can get hired but also how how do they manage this money, giving them access to like you know I mean, a credit union down there, like a no like a no shit good credit union that doesn't have like predatory policies, it's just like, look, you can have your money here. You're going to get a, a debit card. You have a checking account. You'll be able to do it all online. We're not going to Wells Fargo you and just like try to take everything that we can. I mean, th- these are fundamental things, but p- there's no money. In it. There's no money in the inner-, inner city. And that's why people aren't putting their money in there. If you want money, you're going to the north side. You're going to the far west side. Um and we got to stop doing things just motivated by money. Like we got to just because at the end of the day, if we're spending money all this, on all this policing and all these prisons, why don't we spend it on the front end and invest in these communities and try to help them on the long term?
0: You know, pretty you, much any place that Justin has done a project and uh, like a jobs project, they've always had to turn people away. There's never been too many applicants oh, the for any huge. jobs program. I'm sure it would be the same way in Chicago. Like
1: they're not lazy. There's just no jobs. No, there there aren't jobs, and they don't have a car, and they can't get down here, and they might have a record. So you know, and they were like, "Well, you know, is uh, I mean, I you know, I'm a felon. You know, can I work for you?" I'm like, "Man, did I ask?"
2: People aren't people are not sympathetic to that. Because they haven't experienced it yeah. either, where they feel like, you know, well, that person did something to deserve being there, and I'm afraid of them. That's Therefore, somebody... I want them to stay
1: there. Man, you know, I, I love that you were, used the word deserve, because I, I think about that so often. And, man, uh, one of the my my father the the only mistake he made raising me was uh, you know he's a criminal defense attorney the only mistake he made with me is that he tried to raise me to believe the world was was fair or supposed to be fair mm. and i grew up man i i had to unlearn that one real fast i remember that justin you you do i mean yeah. you you both knew that guy that starry-eyed guy and man the one thing man deserves got nothing to do with it for anybody i mean i know like let, me, I, let I, me tell you something you may already know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a crazy thing. I mean, you know, you look at, you look at th- those people. I don't deserve the good things that, that I have in my life any more than uh, anybody else. But I have, I've had some pretty good breaks. And Luckily, also,
2: we we notionally live in a place where we're guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. and lake trout, and uh, check cashing. And a cop on every corner (laughs) uh, is not any of those things.
1: It's not part of that. And uh, I mean, I I get that question all the time and I get it everywhere. I get it in in the Philippines, get it it in uh, uh, Niger and in Azerbaijan. A lot of people will be like, you know, why do you do this stuff? And I feel like I I won the lottery because born in 79 to like good parents in Indiana. I mean, I was like literally born in the town that like Stranger Things is made about, but we didn't have monsters. I mean, it was <laughs> like, that was like my hometown. And I got lucky. I mean, you know, I had, had parents that could afford to send me to good schools. And so, I mean, that's the thing. Uh, I think there's just so much well, I think that it's needs worth, to be done in the, the world. I think it's right? worth
2: noting that people don't see the parallels. Like, it's all well and good to support an NGO that is doing things to keep young filipinos out of isis training camps mm-hmm. but i mean the drug game whatever is going on like with exploitation in inner city mm-hmm. is just isis training camps mm-hmm. the thing is it's just here
1: yeah, yeah. That, that's that's it it's well, all vulnerabilities it's yeah. all exploiting vulnerabilities it's an
2: opportunity that exists for someone who doesn't otherwise have opportunities and so they're willing to to take it.
1: But you also have the vice lords and you know the Latin Kings in Chicago that provide real governance, like real governance in some of these neighborhoods, shadow governments. Shadow governments. <laughs> I mean that that's what it is and it's because the penetration of the services from the city of Chicago don't make it. So Yeah, that's right. It Yeah, it's just it's fascinating how people will figure out a way to like govern themselves and even if it is isn't perfect or even that acceptable, if it's not uncomfortable, they'll usually put up with it because, man, if you are, this is the thing that Reed and I are seeing a lot when it comes to the, the. we've been doing a lot of uh, work with fisher folk or studying up on the fisher folk because they're a very vulnerable population with uh, uh, with climate change and with all the predatory fishing that's starting to go on because there's a whole lot of people that like to eat fish. And the fisheries are starting to collapse, and so now we have large nation states that are starting to, you know, harvest these fish in other people's waters, and you can't do it.
2: Well, it's w- also interesting because they're the same nation states that are dumping, oh, millions of tons of plastics yeah. in the ocean just because yeah. it's too expensive to recycle. Absolutely, don't turn the smelter
1: on; just dump uh, yeah. them in the ocean. Just, just just put that in the ocean. And one of the things that we've found is that a lot of these vulnerable communities don't have the bandwidth to act. Uh, to um, to talk about what's going on in their own lives, to be activists, because they're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. They're absolutely exhausted. They're doing everything that they can to provide meagerly for their families um and, and and so people wonder why these issues aren't heard and no one's addressing it. it's because no one knows about them who goes out and talks to people in north lawndale chicago who goes and talks to you know fisher folk that now are only bringing in like a quarter of the catch that they had 10 years ago no one no one really cares about the poor but if you look at where a lot of the a lot of the foot soldiers for violent movements come out of their economically desperate young men that are going to the easiest and fastest source of capital that they have for a lot of different reasons um ongoing cartel wars in Mexico like pretty much anybody and everybody we've ever dealt with 10 dollar taliban trying to uh, afford their uh, wedding yep Gee, i mean how perverse is it that like there are thousands of young men that fought us to pay for their weddings or to pay for their bride i mean that that is true we know this holy crap like we funded weddings that's crazy so it's just all all to say that like i think there there are better investments in youth and the and i think if it gets to the point where it's a security problem then you know now it's going to be really really expensive you know, ISIS could have been addressed in the Philippines if it, if it went down to some of those really core areas and addressed those things early on proactively, probably around to the tune of, uh, you know, two, three million dollars of investment down there. Like a heavy USAID program uh, with some really close like Civmil stuff with both the local government and, um, and the AFP and obviously the the soft that are there with AFP. Um, and now because they didn't do that and they took over that huge city, just blew up one third of it. I mean, it's I think it's just hundreds of millions. It's really important.
2: That, um, <laughs> we have the the pendulum swinging back. So we've we, we spent a lot of time with well intentioned white people throwing money at problems they didn't understand all over the
1: world and broke
2: everything. The U.S. government is a prime example mm-hmm. of how of how that's done. Absolutely. Um, from an academic standpoint, now I think a lot of academics are basically saying that white people are incapable of doing good,
1: and I I, I don't disagree with them. I
2: I don't disagree either, but I think that it's important to note that like what you guys are doing isn't white people throwing money at problems, it's resource management and allocation. That's right. Being like, hey, there's a lot of well-intentioned white people that want to throw money at problems. Mm-hmm. I'm the middleman.
1: Well, that that's exactly the, it. Being the, being the honest broker yep. here and being like, like, don't listen to me. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white dude from Indiana. Like, But here's 1,500 people that are asking for X, Y, and Z. Um, and if we do this, we can have this type of impact. If we want to do this, we can have this type of impact. What do you want to do well I, I, I want to help out you know I want to help out the the, the soft folks that are you know that are around the world i 'd love to you know support them and the efforts they make well, what they cannot fund is stuff like this like the the existing pots of money that the military has access to cannot do x, y, and z, so if you want to help them out. Help those gaps. Like, don't replicate what they can do. Fill in the gaps that they can, because when it comes to government stuff, I mean, it's really limited. Like, what you can spend humanitarian assistance money on is quite strict. Soccer balls. We were spending a lot of
0: this week reading over different laws and funding lines, trying to figure out how to fund different projects. And the amount of things the government can't spend money on is surprisingly narrow. It is. And it's for military stuff, like the military can spend money on military stuff when it comes to actually helping local populace it's very difficult Yeah, to- if they
1: say that livelihoods is the biggest issue, the military doesn't have that many tools well, to yeah. do that, and quite frankly... Uh, the training. I don't want, but but it, it's very important that we also say a lot of civilians that get involved in that space don't have the background and training to do that either. Yes. Just because you went to Georgetown for your master's program doesn't mean you can go into a local, uh, like in, into a local community and set up smart economic programs. That's that is not true. It is hard. Um, and quite frankly, bringing in those outside mindsets. I mean, even the the economy in the hometown you grew up in is different than the economy that I grew up in in southern Indiana.
2: Ah, uh, They're probably both oriented around a lot of meth. <laughs> no, they
1: are. <laughs> meth and overruns on uh, like local construction contracts that yeah. then is like funding everybody else in the town. Uh, and um, And, you know, the... Yeah that's that's what that, that that's so people are looking at it it kind of translating these uh these different experiences into local communities. And that's where it usually breaks down. Like at the end of the day, just listen to what they're talking about. Use the skills that you have to to understand that and refine that concept and, and get it in front of people that are actually experts, that are scientists. Because like, man, they can look at things and be like, oh, you don't want to plant that there. Like you plant that there, that is a waste. You want this. And you probably want to get these varietals because at that elevation, that's where you're... And you would have never known this. And going out and just buying seeds, even buying the seeds that they're asking for... You want to at least vet that because they may be genuinely asking for whatever they felt like they could afford. But because we're augmenting that, we can get them, bump them up into a price range where they're actually getting like you know seeds that will last, you know, last through like uh, some sort of uh, drought or last through like some sort of infestation or monsoon. <laughs> exactly. Like there, there's just all this stuff. But they don't even have. I mean, why would you do all this research if you don't remotely have the money to buy that stuff? I mean, I've never gone shopping online for a Lamborghini. Why? I mean, I'd like to, but I'm just never going to be able to soon, afford it. soon. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> With yeah. all the money that's flowing into the temple project. That's right. Woo.
0: But bring it back to a, a problem he is trying to solve, he found these fields over there in southern Philippines where there could be rice grown there, but there's simply no irrigation bringing, bringing water there, where this has been a problem for a while oh
1: decades right? decades yes, yes. absolutely and, uh, and and this is one of the reasons that the 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 farms aren't doing very well i mean they have they have probably dozens if not hundreds of hectares in this one community that are just they're not irrigated properly and so they're just lying fallow and that is like when you're poor That you can't do it, but it it takes a community to refurbish those like irrigation canals. I mean, it's hard work. You're going to go. I mean, we're going to be doing a lot of cleaning, but I've got 130 boys working for me. I mean, I could fix up canals. I mean, that's exactly what you want. You want a work crew um, and you want a project that is labor intensive, but resource, you know, not so bad. So that's what this is. Um, And Doug, I want you to come. You need to come down to see us down there. I love how there's always this guilt. I kind of want, you, want you to, because uh, we never got to deploy together.
2: I know. Well, this uh, would be way more fun than that
1: anyway. Oh, uh, tons. Yeah. Way more austere, but uh, but <laughs> none w- of the fun stuff. We're gonna we're gonna have the uh, but we're gonna have a trial run in Oregon in like a month. I'm excited. It's gonna be so fun. Justin's piece. coming to the long range shooting course. So man, if for it's a good crew too. Is it good?
2: Oh, dude! Everybody that signed up so far, I, I actually I know or tertiarily know. There's only like two unknowns really? in the whole group. Yeah, it's gonna be rad.
1: No, I I, I can't wait. I uh, I've been looking forward to this. This is the first like real vacation I've had since October 2017. So, uh, goddamn, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, and, and Simone was actually the one that really pushed me to do it. She's like, "You need, you need to take some time off. You need to be around people you like. You need to get." And I was, and, and I was like, "And there's guns. We get to do some long. I love long, long range shooting. See, a lot of people like look at uh, like marksmanship and all this stuff is a very like rednecky sport. And like, and, and I think it, I mean nerds. <laughs> and the problem is like if you look at long range uh, precision shooting, it's really really hard and it takes a lot of technical skill and that's why I enjoy like I enjoy the math I enjoy none of these things are true it is not hard it is just math and the reason the
2: reason dudes won't do it is because it's nerds
1: nerds yeah they're
2: like oh man
1: but man nothing feels better than hearing
2: that uh bing on like a fourteen hundred like seven meter. seconds after you fired it. it's so dope and you're like "Well,
3: i mean i know you feel better after you go to the range i've benched, oh, I I've benched the range with you and <laughs> yeah, i know I mean, you, like, you need I'm to smiling. do like a happy, range day you know. once a week
2: mm-hmm. just so happens just this is at a luxury there. ranch in eastern oregon it just so happens yep. So yep. So. surrounded by
1: some really cool people yeah. so Th- that's gonna be pretty great so i cannot wait we're gonna
2: have a blast um that's good. if you guys want to follow what justin simone and reed are doing um follow the ample project which is impl project project.org there's no periods or anything no Justin made it super hard to find yeah. because of
1: the name. That's right. I, I, I chose the most recognizable name in the world.
2: Yeah. Implement, implementation. Implementation. Yeah. Shortened to Imple. Yeah. IMPL. Yeah, I am PL yeah I And have. they're on
1: Facebook. Do you guys have if, an Instagram? Yeah, we We're do on have an Instagram. Instagram. It's not nearly as good as yours. Teach fit, me the ways of the Force Man.
2: I don't actually know. First of all, I'm like a blind hog looking for acorns. But I'm I think f- you follow us. I'm about to go look and see because I never know. Man, but. that's huge. Get
1: uh, good old do. Dougie Key sweater to follow us. That's pretty. No, exciting I do. Sorry. We do need to get more active <laughs> on all this. Do. We, we, we do. I need a. If there's any young people that are listening and you want to uh, help us out with our all uh,
2: 224 followers,
1: there we go. I know we're horrible at this.
2: There is a period on the, the ample project on Instagram. Is it? But there, oh, yeah, yeah, but there isn't one on
1: Facebook. Is there? Oh man, you well, just like brought I, this up. Jeff's going to kill me now. You br- <laughs> you have found the, the 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 Easter egg.
3: The exact branding is. IMPL period
1: Got project. It. but Perfect.
2: No, it's like that on Facebook too. So you're yeah. good. Yeah, I'm wrong. And you guys are right. I'm totally going to eat crow on that one. But there <laughs> isn't one on the website. Because there, there is you can't a, do that, yeah, that's right,
3: not in our web address, yeah,
2: so no. the web address is empleproject.org. Yeah, there's a lot right. more information about what you guys are doing as a whole, and are you guys you guys are actively looking for people to be involved, from, oh absolutely, yeah, like we' so always we're,
3: we're always looking for consultants and you know people who are interested in maybe like interning or you know doing volunteer work with us, absolutely or coming out and following us on a project, like you guys are doing
1: side. adventurous stuff, I mean, like this isn't yeah. like. Oh, I think I got the, one of the best jobs in the world. I mean, I, I, have a, I have an amazing job. I get to see things that a lot of people don't see. Mm-hmm. Um, one one of the things that we are always actively looking for are interesting problems. I mean, I, that's actually how the Chicago thing came up, is uh, a good friend of mine that, is, that works um, mostly in, like, the community uh, safety space. She approached us and said, you know, um, can you do this in Chicago? And so we're always looking for really interesting problems with, with good partners. So, I mean, I would be totally down with doing something in Sacramento or, uh, like, St. Paul. It really... But just boils down to like finding the right partners to want to work on these problems because man, we we can do this in Durham. Yeah, we we can. It's just you know where a lot of the funding comes is internationally, but there's so much need in the United States to do it as well. So,
2: well, thank you guys for coming in and yeah, it will not be the last time we see each other.
1: Well, no, you're stuck with me for a week. And Aaron
2: is super glad to be done with the water bottles, so mm-hmm. there's that thing.
1: Well, I'm super so <laughs> Now i got to talk to some of our uh, mill friends to see if they'll uh, fly it over there for us. I'm yeah, sure
2: if you guys good. have access to a freight shipment capacity that can get... Uh, a pallet, a four sixty three L of water purification water bottles to the Philippines. Yeah, you would be doing Justin a huge favor.
1: Yeah, there <laughs> we go. So uh, we're looking for some airlift. You could save us about sixteen thousand dollars, and we'd appreciate that's that.
2: right. Or you could just give sixteen grand
1: you could do that. If you don't have access. Well, hey, for sixteen grand, I will put those in the boat and row those across. There you go, everybody. <laughs> all right, guys. Well Just I appreciate you and We'll guys put it
3: up in. on Instagram.
1: That's right. We will post it on Instagram.
2: All two hundred and twenty four followers. All
1: for all, all of them. They'll love me. Yep. They'll love me. All right. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Doug. Thank you.